0: Coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, we'd like to welcome you to Storytown Radio, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Lori Olmstead. I do want to thank our new 2021 season sponsors, Sandy and Gary Degner, and our newest season sponsor, Ray D. Olafur. And of course, we'd also like to thank the makers of parsley. Yes, parsley, that smooth, easy-going flavor that enhances every meal. Sprinkle it on or garnish a dish. It tastes better with parsley. Mom, do mornings come too early for you? Then frozen toast is the answer. From the freezer to the toaster, what could be simpler than frozen toast? <coughs> Hit it, kids. It's a breakfast sensation for toast to toast.
2: What do you want for breakfast, kids? Frozen toast! <laughs> <laughs> Tonight is an especially exciting occasion. Our episode, Good for What Ails You, features stories of healing and healers from all across these parts. It seemed like a great way to bring in several stories that come right out of the mountain states, stories that were shared by actual volunteers and staff at the many locations of their services.
1: That's right, Tom. And between those stories, as well as the ones we have collected from community members both here and throughout the Appalachian region, we'll be giving everyone a good dose of what we do around here for health and healing, from doctors to granny healers, Homemade remedies to tried-and-true cures. I think it's safe to say that um, the show tonight is going to be good for
3: whatever else you. Dr. Stewart brought me into the world. I was born in an old Victorian house converted into apartments. I was put in a dresser drawer because Mama and Daddy didn't have any more beds. There are a lot of people who'd like to put me in a dresser drawer today.
4: (laughs) Dr. Stewart brought me into the world too, old oh, Dr. Stewart, but I was never put in any dresser drawers.
3: Well, you had more money than we did, but i tell you something I bet you didn't know about Dr. Stewart. He not only brought children into the world, he made sure they had a good start at education. Every child he delivered for all those years, he would come by and see them just about when they would be starting school. I remember he came to our home and had a shoe box with shoes, brand new in them, just for me. It was the first brand new pair of shoes I ever wore. And he also brought me pencils and crayons, which I kept in the shoebox, enough to start school. I'll never forget
5: that. Doctors do have an impact, sometimes long-lasting. I was named by my doctor. My mother hadn't thought of a girl's name because Daddy told her we were going to have a boy. And the doctor said... I think she looks like a Betty Jean, and so that's who I am.
6: Dr. Stewart delivered me. He delivered pretty much everybody. I don't even know how many hundreds. Mama wanted to name me after him, and I am so glad he talked her out of it. I would be mortified to go around life as a Tina. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Granny
5: Meadows delivered all Mama's children and named some of us. She named my brother. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Clark. After he got older, he didn't want that name.
2: you try living up to that.
5: I think that's why she named you that. So that you would live up to it. At least try to. Granny believed any of us could become anything. And the older folks, they believed her when she said something was going to happen. Because it was said she could see into the future. If she gave you a great name to live up to... You could expect that she saw great things ahead. As long as you did your part. At every visit, she told us that. My brother changed his name anyway. (laughs) Granny Meadows named me, too. I was always a little disappointed that I wasn't called Cleopatra. (laughs) I think I would have tried to live up to that. She just named me Anne. Pretty ordinary. Anne? Ordinary?
7: I expect you must not listen to stories or do much reading. You look at all the ants in this world, and you'll discover they did great things. Really? Like what? <laughs> that is for you to discover. Discover what they did, and discover what you might do. You are capable of doing great things, Ann. Never forget that.
8: Everybody called her Granny Meadows, but she was my real grandma. And she delivered me, too. She was there when everyone fell to a hush because I was born with a veil on my face. That's what my grandma called it. She's the one who raised me. She was kind of a medicine woman. She took care of folks, black and white. I went with her all over these parts. It was on one of these visits that she told me about the veil. We were walking home, and she got ahead of me. I saw something, a lady, a real fancy dresser. My mother was a fancy dresser, too, so I thought it was her walking down the road. So I ran to her and called out to her. Mama, Mama, over here. She kept going. Then my grandma turned around. Fanny. Fanny. I'm going to meet Mama. No, Fanny. Come here now. I knew by the sound of Granny's voice that I needed to come back. All of a sudden, the fancy dresser turned and disappeared. Grandma and I walked a long time, maybe a mile, before talking. Let's
7: rest our feet here.
8: Granny, why wouldn't you let me go to her?
7: She isn't who you think she was, child. And this is not the right time of day to be walking with spirits.
6: You mean she wasn't real?
7: Oh, she was very real. As real as you and me. She once walked and talked on this earth just like we're doing. But she's on the other side of the veil now. Most times they just want to be remembered. They show themselves and that's that. Sometimes they need to pass on some news to people on this side. But every once in a while, there's one that wants something more. And you have to be careful. Something more like what? When you get a little older, I might tell you. But I don't want to scare you now. That lady probably just wanted to be remembered. But I don't want you walking with the spirit when the time's not right. She should have known better. That's why I called you back. How did she know I'd see her? You were born with a veil on your face. I was too. You were born with half a veil. That means that you can see things, people and ideas that used to be. I was born with a full veil. That means I see things toward the future.
8: And some things that I used to wonder about started making sense. How she would know if someone was going to get well or die.
7: Oh, like you said, Mrs. Jones probably isn't going to make it? Oh, no, honey. Only God knows those things. What I see are more like patterns and pictures. Take Mrs. Jones. If the patterns stay the same, if the weather stays damp and cold and the cracks in her floors aren't covered, then that cough is gonna settle in her lungs. She'll be too cold to get up and move it out of her lungs, and then the pneumonia's gonna take her. Now, if that pattern changes, she's got a chance. But when we tended her, I saw her in her wedding dress. There's only two occasions a woman wears that dress, when she gets married and when she gets buried. And Mrs. Jones is already married. Will I see the future, too? No. The half-veil sees the present and the people from our past.
8: Too bad. I wish I could see the future. My grandmother hugged me. It was my signal to know she was done talking. We'd walk that road together many times over the years to come. We'd walk it for Mrs. Jones' funeral. We'd walk it after Grandma delivered a set of twins and I got to help. I've seen a lot of things going down that road, but I never saw the fancy dresser again. One of these days, though, I'm
9: sure I will. My daddy was the town doctor in this little place in the foothills. We grew up without a lot of conveniences and without too much in the way of socializing since the nearest neighbor was miles away. Our remoteness gave us this sense of freedom, but when we moved into a bigger town, when Daddy was hired there as the new doctor, he carried some of those freedoms there, which were, well, a bit shocking to some of the residents. He'd often go out to get his paper in nothing but his boxers. There were other things.
10: Bleep, 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 bleep. Who blocked the bleeping driveway?
9: Like the swearing.
10: I only swear when it's appropriate. How many bleakly times do I have to say that?
9: Daddy was kept really busy with everyone in town, treating everything from runny noses to saw blade wounds to delivering babies, and he had little patience for nonsense. There was a lady in town that everyone knew to be a hypochondriac. There was always something deathly wrong with her. She just knew it. He was called to her home by her relatives, and Dad arrived. He looked her over and came to the conclusion everyone else had. He was very frank with her.
10: Lady, there isn't a bleeping thing wrong with you. <laughs> if you ask me, I think you bleep, 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 bleep,
9: On second thought, we won't use the language he used. Okay, so Dad looks her over, tells her in no uncertain terms what he thinks of her condition.
0: I'm no bleep and bleep, bleep, if you ask me. I think you're the one who's bleepity, bleep, bleep. And more than that, you bleep,
9: bleep, bleepity, bleep. Okay. So let's just say she returns the compliment. At that, she decides to tarnish his reputation by insisting his diagnosis is wrong and that she was going to die to prove it.
0: Won't you be bleeping ashamed when they bleepity bury me?
9: She took to her bed, and the family couldn't convince her to get up.
10: Well, bleep.
9: (laughs) Being the shrewd psychiatrist he was, he gets his saline and sugar pills.
10: It seems I owe you an apology. You really challenged me. I... I did? Nobody called me that bad doctor before, and I got to thinking about your case. I've decided that you have a rare disease.
0: (laughs) I... I do?
11: Well, bleep!
10: <laughs> I did not recognize it at first. I'm going to give you a shot, and I want you to take three pills a day. This should help you get back to normal. It'll probably take an hour before you feel anything.
9: He gave her a saline solution shot, and she was, a, was out of bed in 30 minutes. Every month, for four months, she was given the same shot. She was kept well after that with sugar pills, which she took every day, and was never sick again a day in her life. And, of course, after that, he was the greatest doctor who ever lived.
10: You're bleeping right I was.
9: <laughs>
1: Good old doc. Healing is not always just about doctors and medicine. Healing comes in all forms, and around here it comes especially in the form of stories.
12: My great-grandmother lived to be 89 years old. Her name was Lou, and she spent her whole life taking care of other people. When she was 10 years old, she helped her grandmother farm all summer long to pay off the bank note and save her grandmother's house. When she was a young woman, she helped raise her younger siblings and then went on to get married and raise children of her own. She helped her husband run his business while she ran her own. And when her daughter went through a divorce, Lou helped raise her grandchildren, my father and uncle. She was a constant, never-changing figure in my father's life. She grieved with her daughter and grandchildren when she lost her husband. She grieved with my father and grandmother when my uncle died from an accidental gunshot and grieved with my father again when my grandmother died of a brain tumor. Lou lived through the loss of her husband, daughter, and grandchild, lived through all that heartache with my dad. They mourned together through it all and still found beautiful ways to celebrate life through birthday parties and Christmases and through storytelling. She would tell all kinds of stories about when she was a girl in the thirties, about the way things have changed over time. But they were always stories about people and family, and she would remember every detail. The people she had lost weren't gone. They were there in her stories and in her heart. My dad stayed by her side over the years through countless surgeries and doctor's visits. During her second hip replacement surgery, she went under anesthesia. And as some of you may know, symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's can be worsened by anesthesia, and that's what happened. So my father came by to visit her at the hospital, worried that she may have lost memory of where she was and who he was. Their conversation went something like this.
13: How you doing, Nana? You feeling all right?
12: Yes. Feeling fine,
14: I suppose. How's your
13: memory doing?
14: I remember you. Don't you worry. Now shut that door and come over here. We need to have a talk.
13: Nana, the door will be fine open. What do you want to talk about?
14: I asked you to shut the door. Shut it. Good. Now come sit over here beside me and we are going to have a talk. What about...
13: what are we going to talk about?
14: I know why I am here.
13: Well, why are you here, Nana?
14: Because I'm going to have a baby. You're what? I'm having a baby and it's yours.
13: Uh, Nana, I've really got to go now.
14: No, sir. You're going to sit right here, and we are going to talk about what to do with this baby.
13: Uh, Nana, no, I've got to go. I'll see you tomorrow.
12: (laughs) And he did come back the next day, but this time in a brand new truck.
13: How you doing today, Nana?
12: I'm feeling fine. How are you?
13: I'm just great, Nana.
12: Everything seemed like it was back to normal.
13: Good to see you looking healthy again. Have you been entertaining yourself?
14: Well, as well as I can. What have you been doing today?
13: Well, let's see. I did some work this morning, then I bought a new truck.
14: A new truck? Well, I just can't believe you. A new baby on the way, and you've gone out and bought a truck. And just how do you think we're going to afford
12: that? Even though she didn't remember exactly who my dad was, she still knew she loved him, even if it was a different kind of love. She thought her grandson was her husband, even though her husband had been gone a long time. She saw him so vividly because he was still alive, in her memory and in their legacy, her grandson, who was sitting there holding her hand as she remembered them all. She kept them alive through her memories and the stories she told, stories that were always about family and always about hope. Now I realize it's my turn to keep her alive in the same way. And perhaps, in 70 years, I may be sitting with my grandchildren, her great-great-great-grandchildren. And they will get to know her, too. I hope so.
5: They call me the Cookie Lady. I am the Cookie Lady of Sycamore Shoals Hospital, I come in and get to work in the kitchen, baking dozens and dozens of cookies. Then I put on my little apron, load the cart up, and go through the hospital, giving away cookies. A lot of people say, well, how much are they? And I tell them, nothing, they're free, please take one. I give them out to patients, and I also give them out to staff. Sometimes a doctor or a nurse will have a really hard day, and I'll come by with my cart of sweetness and offer them a cookie. It might be the only sweet moment of the day they've had. I love to see the smile in their eyes when they bite into the cookies I bake, and I feel like in that moment they are wrapped in a big hug from me to them. That's what it's about, to show them that someone cares, that we care, and that no matter how hard everything is, there are still sweet things waiting around the corner.
0: I volunteer too. Once a week, I take my therapy dog to the cancer treatment center. You would not believe the calm that the dogs bring. Patients could be having a really hard day, but they can sit and pet the dog and not have to say a word. And the dogs, they they just seem to know when people need them. I remember one time we were on our way into the center, still in the waiting area, and my dog stopped turned back and went over to a lady looking out the window. This woman had lost a son a few months before in a bad accident, and now her husband was being treated for cancer. The dog started to nudge her and and lay her chin gently on the lady's knee. I I tried to excuse us, but she softly said, No, no, it's okay. And she and the dog sat together for a long time. When we left... She looked more at peace. The tears were gone from her eyes, but mine were full.
9: Beep, beep, just a minute.
15: Drug Drugstore in Elizabethton, Tennessee was established in 1892 by pharmacist Harry Bergie. Later, Max Jett began working for Mr. Bergie as a staff pharmacist in 1927. They were partners for many years. mister Jett became the sole owner after mister Bergie's death in nineteen fifty two. Then Larry M. Profit began work as a pharmacist for Max Jett in nineteen sixty nine, then later bought the business from him in nineteen seventy one. Berge Drugstore was moved from downtown to its present location in 1975. It has been owned and operated for the past 43 years by Mr. Profit. The business was built on the promise of providing quality drugs at competitive prices with quick service, and it's still practicing this today. Over 120 years after its start, They are still serving the same community. I've gone there for years, and I remember when they put their drive-through window in. It caused quite a stir at first, and then everyone wanted to use it.
16: Beep,
10: beep. What did you bleep and say?
3: (laughs) I said, beep. Can't you see I'm driving? I said, beep as in beep, not beep. Bleep, as in something you might say. Doc, beep beep. I'll be over
6: there right away, Miss Mavis. (sighs) Fergie's drive-through started sort of unofficially at first. A lot of older people would drive to the drugstore and beep their horns in the lot. They'd never get out of their cars or even stop. They just beep. beep. (sighs) (sighs) Well, we'd bring their prescriptions or other orders they'd called ahead for. Others saw that, and pretty soon, it wasn't always the older customers who came by and beeped their horns. So, to keep us from running back and forth between the drugstore and the parking lot, we finally put it in a drive-thru window. People still sometimes beep their horns, but I don't feel like I need roller skates anymore to do my job. Beep beep! (sighs) I'm coming, I'm coming! Service with a smile, even when they're beeping the bleep out of you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Anna. I've been to the historic Drug drugstore in Elizabethton, and it really is remarkable to be in a business that you know has been around for over 120 years. It speaks to the traditions that are handed down in this region. Now I think it's time to call up the rest of the cast to share their deep wisdom and thoughts and a little piece we like to call Throw Me yeah. a Line.
2: Tonight... We're doing things a little differently. Since our show is about healing, we thought we'd ask our cast members about some of the old home remedies and cures they've been taught throughout the years. If you have arthritis, have a cat sit on your knees
11: whenever you have arthritic pain. Or mix turpentine with either vegetable oil, an egg, or animal fat, For all three. And rub it on your skin. Granddaddy always
2: said to put two horse chestnuts in your pants' pockets for arthritis. No,
14: no, no. One large thimble of gunpowder, mix in a tablespoon of milk. After taking that, drink a good half pint of milk separately. Then go to bed with a lot of warm blankets and sweat a lot.
3: If a child has a bad dream you rub garlic
8: on their feet. If you're bleeding and don't have a bandage, put a spider web on the cut to seal it.
5: If you get a fishbone caught in your throat, swallow a
15: raw egg. Bull bleep. (laughs) I thought you were supposed to eat soft bread. Oh, that probably works. If you catch a head cold, eat a roasted Spanish onion before going to bed.
10: If you get a corn and you can't get it off, Take one genuine mother of pearl in a saucer. Squeeze lemon juice over the button in the morning and in the evening for a week. The button turns to paste. Then spread this paste over the corn and cover with a bandage. Repeat daily until the corn is gone. If you eat coleslaw before you drink, you won't get drunk.
13: (laughs) The problem is... I never know how much coleslaw to eat, so it hasn't worked for me yet.
5: If your child gets a fever, chop up raw onions and put them in a linen cloth. Tie this to your
2: child's feet. In the morning, the fever should be gone. To cure a hangover, when you wake up in the morning, take a quarter of a lemon and rub the juicy
4: side under each armpit. For hiccups, hold a penny in between any two toes on one foot and then transfer the penny to any other two toes on the other foot, but you can't let shit touch the floor.
14: No, no, that's not right. You're wiring a nutmeg around your neck.
0: No, 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 that's not either. That's not it. For hiccups, you take something cold that's made of metal, like a spoon, and you tie it on a string and lower it down the hiccupping person's back.
7: For memory problems, drink sage tea. <laughs>
9: To prevent sunstroke, put a cool, wet cabbage leaf on the crown of your head under your hat.
4: For everything else, take castor oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that we got.
1: Okay, okay. Those are some very interesting remedies. Now, some of them I've heard of. Uh, some I might have even tried. But when I'm feeling ill... I really prefer more modern treatments. We sat down with nurses to get their perspective on what it's like to deal with patients every day. And this is what they told us
3: I had a lady I had taken care of for several months. She had a lot of health issues and was below the knee amputee and was having phantom pain. You can't give any kind of special medicine for something like that. I felt honored. To care for her and to coach her through that pain. There's a whole spiritual aspect of caring for someone. Despite the pain, she had faith through it all. And that restores my own faith, too. Mm,
15: I remember a patient that I recall who affected me was a woman who was one of 12 children. She would talk to me while I administered to her. They lived on a farm. And raised everything they ate. Vegetables, meat, everything.
8: And you had to get to the table early if you wanted something to eat. If you were late, you might miss the chicken. (laughs) It was a good lesson. I was on time for everything in my life because you never knew what you might miss if you were late. It just might be delicious. (laughs)
15: She was missing her sisters Who had already passed away And I did her wound care Which was very painful But she told stories about her family As I worked on her And I could see her pain ease If only for a little while When the stories were being told
2: One thing I know is You never stop being a nurse, not at home, not in the community. It's a part of who we are.
1: The most amazing conversations happen in the wee hours of the morning. One patient, she was old and frail and very sick. She was doing a lot of reflecting and asked me to pray with her. I did. A couple of days later, she passed. I felt that loss. It's always a special moment when a patient asks you to pray with them. When patients are
5: transferred to Johnson City Medical Center, they're often very far from home. What I learn is to embrace the family because they're coming far away and full of fear of anxiety. When we ask patients what they want, the main thing they say is communication. So we work hard to bring that to them and to the families. It's important to listen to the patient. We have to know their goals.
1: Those are some really moving perspectives. Joseph Sobel has a story that can speak to that last idea, about listening. He was with our region's own Ray Hicks, the famous jack storyteller, while Ray was brought in by his family to seek medical help. Now, before I give anything else away, I'll just ask Joseph to come to the stage and tell us that story. Joseph?
17: Thanks, Laurie. Uh, Gonna lay down my old guitar. Gonna lay down my old guitar. I wish I could strap it to my side and carry it along with me. Susan O'Connor was dumbstruck. By this, Susan uh, is the longtime programming director of the International Storytelling Center. And we were standing in the hall of the pediatric ward at Johnson City Medical Center. Ray Hicks was in his room with the doctor. Susan was saying, you wouldn't believe it. Ray had been admitted a couple days before because he was feeling poorly. He'd missed the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro for the first time in many, many years. And his friends finally persuaded him to come down off the mountain and see some real doctors. And uh, trying to get him through those gatekeepers, well, that's another story. It was uh, one of the most amazing medical interviews of all time. But there he was in the hospital, and he had been diagnosed with stage four cancer of the prostate and the colon, metastasized to his bones. And Susan said, This morning, Ray took a walk up and down the hall. And when he was on his way back, he came to the nurse's station. And he turned around to all the people in the hallway patients, doctors, nurses, orderlies, everyone. And he said, They say the cancer's going to take me. I figure if I'm going to go, I might as well go singing. And he Raised his great big long arm and started leading the whole hospital in singing, gone lay down my old guitar. It was amazing. Well, Ray was in there with the doctor. And we were waiting to go in and see him. And down the hall came a little girl, 10, 11 years old. Her hair burned off by the chemo and the radiation, just a little fuzz on top, a few strands dropping down. And her old palsied grandma was walking with her, clinging to the railing, shaking so bad she could hardly stand. And it was hard to tell which one was sicker. And as they came up to us, I said, you like stories? She nodded. I said, well, you're in luck today because one of the greatest storytellers in the country is right here along your hall. That makes you neighbors. And Ray likes neighbors, so maybe if he gets free, we can go in there and I can introduce you. She nodded. So pretty soon the door came open and the doctor brushed past us. And it looked like Ray was in a receptive mood, so we walked in. And I said, Ray, this is Kimberly. She lives uh, right here on your hall. That makes you neighbors. And Ray asked her name, first name, last name. They compared notes, you know. She was a Presley he was related to some presnals on his mother's side that made them almost kinfolk. (laughs) So after they took care of those formalities, you know, Ray settled back. He said, uh, well, this story is about a time when older folk didn't mind hitting young people. (laughs) Sometimes for no reason at all. Just hit them just to make them pay attention, you know hit him with a board, hit him with a strop, leave bruises in their bones sometimes, you know. Sometimes they'd never get better. Some folks think that might be what's wrong with me. But same thing happened to Jack. His father took to whuppin' him because he didn't do his chores. Jack said, I did him, but father wouldn't believe him, just whupped him just in case. And Jack had had enough, figured he'd light out run away so that's what he did and ray went on to tell the story of jack and the animals which is about how jack ran away from home started a new family with a donkey an ox a dog a cat a rooster and they all went off and found their fortune through grace and cleverness and through sticking together made a new family and he leaned back in bed, and he made all the animal sounds—the sounds of the donkey, the sounds of the ox, the sounds of the dog, the cat, the rooster, the robbers, everything—and he just closed his eyes and disappeared into the story. And all the while, the the monitors were bleeping and making their little patterns in the in, in in the in the monitor there, and and the intercom was blaring out in the hall, and gurneys were rolling by, going going by empty, coming back full, you know. But all that disappeared. And everybody in that room just looked at the storyteller or looked through him into the story and watched it go by. And when Ray was done, I turned to the little girl and I said, you know, you're a lucky girl to hear that story that way today from that man. And she nodded and she skipped off down the hall. And that's when her granny said... You know, she ain't even got a daddy. Her daddy's so mean. Found him another woman before she was even born. Won't even send her a Christmas card. And I don't know how it happened that Ray in that mysterious alchemy that storytellers can have sometimes, you know, he honed in on the one story in the entire Jack Tale universe where Jack's daddy was plum mean too. And I don't know how He knew it, but he did. And I don't know how long that girl had to live with that or to think about it. I know Ray lasted another two years. They sent him home, gave him six months. He said, thank you very much, and he took two years. (laughs) But on that day, that girl was like Jack and like any of us who've had a great storyteller in our lives. Just plumb lucky.
1: Thank you, Joseph.
2: In the South, in the late 30s, there were no taxes for neglecting mandatory medical insurance. In the South, in the late 30s, there was no medical insurance, especially for farmers who lived off the land. They earned that money off the land, ate off the land, found healing by the land. In that summer heat, when the mornings started before the sun rose and daylight savings didn't change the time that the cows were milked, and doctors, when you could afford them, still made house calls and carried little black bags. Home remedies were the norm. It was more affordable and, most importantly, kept you out in the field. You see, Farmers couldn't afford sick days, (laughs) but they still could afford to impress women. (laughs) Farmers needed hardy wives who could grow a kid as well as raise a vegetable. A hardy woman was someone who enjoyed the feel of dirt under her fingernails and wasn't scared when the coyotes came calling for the chickens after dark. But no farmer, no farmer, could catch a fine woman if he had warts on his hands. Which is why, in the South, in the late 30s, at the end of a harsh day of farming, my grandfather could be found on his front porch wearing a sweat-stained shirt, a freshly rolled cigarette between his lips, and a cricket in his hands, eating off the warts. (laughs) You know, it must have worked. He married my grandmother in 1942.
16: The following is an advertisement from the East Tennessee Medicine Company. Dear friends, it is so easy to get sick and so hard to get well if the digestion is bad. It is generally conceded that nine-tenths of the human ills arise from that dreaded disease, indigestion. The slightest disturbance of the stomach deranges all the succeeding operations of digestion and of all the ills to which the flesh is heir. There is none which so discourages or makes you feel worse than indigestion or dyspepsia thousands of good people starve to death in the united states every year with abundant food and easy reach no matter what or how much you eat if you do not digest and assimilate it it does you no good you gradually starve to death your mind weakens with your body you are the victim of strange dreams delusions and hallucinations deplorable condition and so easy to avoid If you are sick, Dr. Panhorst indigestion powder or tablets will surely help you. Thousands have been helped by their use. Why not you? It is pleasant to take. It acts quickly. Why not try a bottle today? And you can see Dr. Sadie later for a bottle. That's the end of the uh, verbatim uh, medical advertisement. Now, a little history. Uh, Dr. Panhorst immigrated from the Netherlands to America in 1867, and he made his home in Jonesboro at 208 West Main Street the stucco home. His father had been a surgeon in the Royal Dutch Navy, and he used a lot of his father's teachings to found the East Tennessee Medicine Company in 1890 and write wonderful advertisements like that. The company sold PIP, Panhorst Indigestion Powder, and a multitude of other medicines. Unfortunately, the company fell on hard times, and Dr. Panhorst was forced to sell in 1894. The Park Davis Company bought the formula for PIP, and they eventually turned it into Tums. And in that way, Dr. Panhorst's legacy lives on.
11: My story will end with my last telling of it before I pass into eternity, for I'm childless. No one will be left to recall it. My story starts with those before me to understand the miracle of it. My father's from a deeply religious Christian family. His father and grandfather were ministers. Daddy, being just 20 years old, and Mama, just 17, were married in the spring of 1951. Daddy shipped out to Korea in 1952. Mama lived with her parents on the Mill Hill. Daddy finished his tour, and I was born a year later, on Valentine's Day their first child. We moved out of my grandparents' place and into one of our own. The apartment was heated by oil heaters, the big four-foot upright kind that had pilot lights and temperature regulators. They could get extremely hot. Mama had her hands full keeping me away from that heater. She had a dreadful fear of fire because in 1932... On a cold October night, a horrific fire broke out in a house on the hill. A whole family perished. My mama's aunt, her husband, their three children, and his sister. Two of them lingered into the following couple of days. Back then, doctors could give morphine for pain, but not much else for such burns. Except They'd just pray that God would be merciful and allow death to deliver them. It was on another cold October day that I was toddling around our home and fell against the heater, searing my face, arm, and body. My parents administered cold, wet cloths, but they didn't take me immediately to the hospital. Nobody had cars on the Mill Hill, and payday was still a week away. Nevertheless, they were with a severely injured child and had a decision to make. My maternal grandmother recommended calling a woman who could talk the fire out of burns.
8: You need to call Granny Meadows now before it's too late.
11: It became a spiritual test for my daddy. He didn't want to call this woman who to him performed witchcraft.
7: Don't worry. It will be all right. But will he live? Everything has a place and a time. I do not believe this is his time. You should believe too.
11: She stood over me with her back to them. She placed her hands on the burned places of my body and cited a Bible verse from the book of Jeremiah and spoke softly. I can't remember everything, but I remember the verse from Jeremiah. The pain
7: will end soon. The scars might remain if you don't hold still.
11: My pain was more than relieved. It was gone. After telling my parents not to put bandages on me, she did not linger. She left with one last instruction. Believe
7: and expect signs of healing.
11: It was a difficult thing for my father to do, to believe in something different. He struggled as I struggled. As I began to heal, he was able to believe. Or perhaps when he was able to believe, I was able to heal. The scars disappeared save for one ridge on the side of my face. The mystery is we'll never really know which came first, healing or belief. Because he never told me and he's gone now. And one day, I will be too. Not even the scar left to remind anyone what I lived through, who I was. Everything has a place and a time. There is healing in that knowledge.
4: Doc Thompson was working the ER one night, and a man came running in. <sighs> Quick, Doc.
13: My wife is in the backseat of the car. The baby's coming now. I'll go. You let the nurse know her name. We can
4: get her in a room. Doc Thompson runs out with his bag, and he pulls open the car door. Get on the floor! Get on the floor! The lady gets on the floor like he tells her, and Doc Thompson pulls up her dress to deliver the baby, and he stops. Sorry. Wrong car. (laughs) Get on the floor! Get on the floor now! Wait. uh, wait. Are you having a baby? The second visit was the charm. Another one about Doc Thompson and a second visit. This happened before chemotherapy and radiation became routine treatments. It used to be that cancer was a death sentence, no matter what kind. Doc Thompson scheduled surgery with a woman having stomach pain. When he opened her up, he found that she was eaten up with cancer. I was a nurse assisting and we all went silent. I said, There's nothing we can do. Let's just sew her back up.
10: Wait, there's one thing we can do.
4: Before sewing her up, Doc Thompson said a prayer for her. He knew it was out of his hands, so he asked it to be put in the Lord's. He told the woman the prognosis and scheduled a second visit to check her blood count. When she came back, the cancer was gone, and he knew there was nothing he himself had done. Believe and expect
7: signs of healing. Healing doesn't
10: always come through a doctor's hands alone.
5: No matter how hard things get, there is always something sweet waiting around the corner.
8: Whether it's a sweet memory from the past or a hopeful glimpse into the future.
10: If you're hurting, there's always someone there. Even if it's one person, there is someone there. At one of the many locations of Mountain State Health Alliance
2: to root healers and old time knowledge
10: to music that soothes the body mind and
4: soul just remember
2: there's someone who cares someone there to
10: help you don't ever bleeping forget that
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you to all the helpers healers doctors and caregivers who make our lives easier to live <clears throat>